And you better turn up the dial because we are back. Welcome, listeners, another edition of Prescription Sound, and this is your host, Drew, as per usual. Today, we have quite the episode focused on the important topic of neurodegenerative disease. We'll be diving into the latest scientific theories surrounding these conditions and how different organizations can come together to improve the outlook for patients. This episode was recorded live at the Spectrum Conference earlier this year and was, in fact, a three-person discussion between myself, Dr. Brian Fisk, and Professor Jeff Kelly. Brian is the Senior Vice President for Research Programs at the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Disease, while Jeff is in the Department of Chemistry here at Scripps Research, developing novel drugs for neurological conditions. So without any further ado, let's jump into the dialogue. We start by joining Brian as he details how he initially got involved with the Michael J. Fox Foundation. So I'm a neuroscientist by education and training. I've got my biology degree at Texas A&M University. Uh, uh, Spent a couple of years figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. Was convinced to go back to grad school. Uh, Went to University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Uh, That's where I got my PhD. And then at that point, knew I wanted to maybe explore sort of different career paths. Um, I decided to go ahead and do a postdoc at Columbia University in New York for for just a little bit, just to make sure I was going to make the right decision. And then the first opportunity to get out of the lab, actually, I was an editor at Nature Neuroscience for a couple of years. My first foray into sort of how do you evaluate science and how do you decide what, you know, what's what's interesting and what's not. I was there about three years, I think. And then uh, at that point was Michael J. Fox Foundation started uh, thinking about hiring scientists in-house to sort of help manage their programs and uh, a good buddy of mine who I went to grad school with, uh, who's still there now, he's now our CEO. Uh, he was the first scientist they hired, and so when he came on board, he, uh, he called me up and asked if I wanted to be a part of it. And, you know, I think at the time I didn't have a personal connection to Parkinson's, so it was sort of a, you know, a new opportunity for me. But you know, since that time, of course, you know, like with any disease, once you get more involved, suddenly people with it start coming out of the woodwork, and you realize how connected yeah. you, you all really are to a lot of these diseases. Yeah, I think for me, it was just a, an opportunity to be involved at kind of an early stage kind of a, as an enabler, really, of the research. How do, you, how do you help people, you know, explore these ideas and sort of move forward and make progress in something complex like Parkinson's disease? And uh, that, for me, I think was what was really compelling. Yeah, I think I remember reading on your website, which, by the way, has a great blog, and I really love the content <laughs> yeah. on that. Do you guys uh, kind of have around 250 active grants? Uh, more than that, more actually. Than that, yeah, yeah, yeah. The numbers are kind of just changed. You know, we don't really quantify them quite in that way, even though I think they, they put that on the website. But uh, we have a pretty broad portfolio. Some of them, are, again, are more traditional grants, sort of individual grants to an individual investigator. Uh, but then we have sort of large, larger grants that are sort of more for entire consortia of investigators mm-hmm. that are working together. Probably our biggest investment, I, uh, we have this large longitudinal cohort of you know, following people with Parkinson's now for almost 10 years. That's, you know, tens of millions of dollars of investment and sort of, you know, hundreds of people involved and not the investigators alone and not counting the hundreds of patients that are involved as well. So those are obviously larger, quote unquote, grants, if you want to count them as a single grant. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's a huge, huge portfolio that we have. I mean, I think those those natural history studies yeah. are invaluable yeah. because otherwise you're guessing at what endpoints are in a clinical trial, yeah, whereas if you have a natural yeah. history study... You can be pretty confident the rate of change. Yeah. So it's it's a real challenge. I mean, you know, diseases like Parkinson's, for example, are, are very heterogeneous, and it's just you know we defined our study of people who are newly diagnosed, and right now diagnosis of Parkinson's is based on really whether you present a couple of symptoms related to your right. movement. You either have, you have slow movement, your rigid muscles, you maybe have a resting tremor in some people. Other people, you might have more of a posture balance mm-hmm. problem. 
And that's kind of how you define probable Parkinson's disease. I mean, that's, you know, decades of research in Parkinson's, and that's the best we can do today. Uh, and so I think uh, studies like this are important because we can, you know, start with that, that clinical point and say, okay, we've defined you as Parkinson's based on your symptoms. Start collecting all this information, both clinically, biochemically, even just patient-reported experience of the disease, bring that all together, and then really painting a much clearer picture of what are, what are those first few years of Parkinson's really about, and is it really one Parkinson's disease, or is it multiple different types? And I think we're learning a lot from, from that kind of work. And in combination with that clinical work, you also have people working from the side of basic research, and then also working on kind of digital technologies to help with the disease. So how do you guys achieve that balance with what projects you're going to be funding? Like, how do you connect the dots? And how do you decide what is kind of yeah. the, the best cost benefit? Yeah, it depends on the kind of the area that you're probably funding. Part of our funding that kind of goes to what we call target validation, which, you know, you know, fancier words for kind of disease biology understanding. And so for a lot of those types of grants, it's, you know, it's more traditional finding people with interesting ideas that they want to test out, hypotheses they want to, want to test in a you know, preclinical model of some kind, uh, and then you know, supporting that work. You know, we kind of call them low-touch grants because they're, I'm basically just giving you money for a year or two and letting you come back with something interesting. But I think the point then is if you do start to see something interesting, what do you do next? And I think that's probably where the real challenge is. And so how do you kind of turn those ideas into something real? And, uh, you know, ideas, whether it's connecting the person to another collaborator, you know, maybe depending on the stage of the idea, maybe it's actually getting them in front of some companies who might be interested in sort of supporting and, and taking that work on mm-hmm. and making drugs against it. Um, whether or you kind of alluded to it connecting those individuals with the right technologies and tools they need to actually do the next stage work. I think it's all really important. The other really cool aspects I liked about the foundation is the uh, patient input you have as well. So I think I mentioned to you, I have a family member who's afflicted with um, Parkinson's and I think he'd be really value being part of that review process for where yeah. the, the research can be directed. So how do you kind of incorporate patients yeah. into that review process? Yeah, we have a couple of ways. I mean, we have actually a standing uh, patient councils, we call them, that, that meets twice a year and, uh, and kind of will present all, you know, the work that we're doing and some of the challenges that we're facing, and they'll often provide a lot of great feedback. You know, sometimes it's maybe less on, this, on the nitty-gritty science, uh, but it may be on some of the broader challenges, like you know, recruitment, for example, mm. clinical trials. They've really helped us in that and helping to spread the word and kind of understanding what the factors are that prevent someone from getting involved in a clinical trial. And that allows us to sort of cater and then sort of be more clear about some of our calls mm. to action. Obviously, Parkinson's isn't specific to who it hits. Yeah. Um, and so we have a lot of people, including people who, you know, have experience in drug development who have Parkinson's and have approached us and, and, and wanted to, to work on ways to, to help. Jeff Kelly's lab started off in the neurodegenerative space through their work on a protein called transthyrotin, which can misfold and aggregate, causing damage to tissues such as the nervous system. They have been fashioning small molecule drugs which can stabilize the protein and prevent this aggregation. One such drug is Tefamidis, which is approved in Europe for a peripheral nerve disease and has just been approved by the FDA for a certain cardiac condition also caused by abnormal protein deposits. There have been three or four clinical trials now with the drug Tefamidis that is one of the stabilizers we discovered. And I think we learned two really important things. Um, One is that the process of protein aggregation really does drive neurodegeneration. Mm -hmm. And the second thing we've learned is that treating these patients early is absolutely critical. So if you do a clinical trial and demographically the placebo group and the treated group are identical, by virtue of running an 18-month trial, the responder rate goes down from like 70-ish percent 
to less than 50 just by delaying treatment for 18 months. That's remarkable, right? So my big fear in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease is that we've probably thrown away good drugs by virtue of how we've done clinical trials up to now, right? Meaning that we're actually doing studies on people who have fairly extensive progression. What we're starting to learn with tofamidus, if you let patients go three or four years, the responder rate drops precipitously. There are 40-ish proteins that have the propensity to aggregate and lead to either peripheral or central nervous system degeneration. So that really colored what we're doing in the lab now. These days, we don't do anything in the neurodegeneration space that would solve only one disease, just Mm. because it's taken us 25 years to do this. Right now, Jeff's lab is teaming up with Caliber, the drug discovery division of Scripps Research, where they have a strong focus on drugs that can improve a process called autophagy, which lets the body's tissues clean up and recycle any of their damaged components. So autophagy is genetically linked to virtually every neurodegenerative disease. So, you know, there's a lot of steps in the autophagy pathway and mutations virtually in every step lead to some neurodegenerative disease. So it speaks to the fact that if you could enhance autophagic degradation in an older individual with a neurodegenerative disease and you treated a person early, perhaps you could stop progression. Yeah, definitely. I think this goes back to what we were just talking about in the power discussion, which is the importance of the human work and then trying to catch that early, like you were saying, Jeff, and where do you think we need to go? Do you think it's on the side of diagnostics then and biomarkers? Yeah, because what you were talking about, I think autophagy is a great example of this, you know, where you know, it's, you're right, it's linked to every disease. We certainly explored it in Parkinson's as well. And it's a very compelling, I think, you know, theory and hypothesis for, for, for what might underlie a lot of these disorders. But can you measure that disruption in somebody? So can you actually take a sample from them and say, mm. your autophagy system is screwed up and we need to fix it? And or <laughs> measuring it so that you can actually then test that drug and say, I'm enhancing your autophagy <laughs> system to try to improve you know, your cell's ability to handle this other stuff that we think is leading to your Parkinson's. And therefore, that would, if we can elevate it above a certain level, then we think we can, you know, address your symptoms. So, you know, the other theories too, like inflammation, for example, is right. not something that if you just sort of measure basally your, your inflammation state, uh, you know, in someone with Parkinson's versus someone who doesn't have Parkinson's, you're probably going to see a lot of noise. Yeah. You know, we all walk around probably every day with our immune systems doing crazy things as sure. we get exposed to stuff. So what, is there something though more fundamental that you can kind of hit the system with, measure the uh, response and then say, okay, you're responding differently as someone with Parkinson's and someone without. And that's something that I can then maybe target. As- I'm really curious about what the state of affairs is with the gastrointestinal features of Parkinson's, which I understand precede the CNS pathology. Yeah. So is it feasible yet to think about a clinical study in the context of GI? I think the jury's still out a bit. So, so the idea that we're talking about, largely driven by some of the early pathology studies that have suggested that a lot of the pathology of Parkinson's starts 
kind of in the gut and sort of the enteric nervous system and kind of, quote unquote, makes its way up to the brain over time. And actually, if you sort of think about the regions of the brain involved movement and then follow the pathology, the sort of staging of the pathologies, those regions don't really get hit until the you know, sort of middle stage of the disease, really. And so, and what's interesting is then if you lay over on top of that, some of the clinical symptoms, the onset of the clinical symptoms is, suggests that there might actually be a progression that sort of matches that, that staging. Whether or not that is actually true and whether there is a sort of fundamental disease trigger that starts in the gut and I think is still an open question. A lot of people have been looking at factors like the microbiome and trying to think about are there differences in people with Parkinson's and can you sort of measure that and actually make a, you know, a clear hypothesis for this disruption in the gut is actually what leads to Parkinson's. And I, I think there's a lot of great work that's happening. I don't think anybody has any clear answers yet to say definitively it's a validated mechanism that we should be making tons of drugs against. And, yeah, I was thinking about that too. It must be one of the advantages as well of being at the foundation because you can take a really broad approach and, you know, think about other things, you know, metabolic yeah. stress, chronic inflammation, yeah. all these things that seem to yeah. possibly have a role, but which, you know, yeah. one one person or one center might, yeah. might not be working right. on. Well, selfishly, and it's, this is probably one of the reasons why I left the lab is because I was too impatient. I just, the <laughs> idea of sitting at the bench and focusing on that one question and, you know, I just was, you know, going to jump out the window. So for me, I loved... The idea of being able to see lots of ideas and sort of know, know everybody's business and kind of know what they're working on and sort of connect the dots and sort of see where the trends are and sort of yeah. where the, the ideas are coming from. And Yeah, and it was interesting what Trevor Mundell from the Gates Foundation was saying, which is that it's such a big multi-center approach that we need to achieve these big aims. And I, I mean, Jeff, you must have seen this with your experience. That must be one of the advantages of having, you know, scripts, research, caliber, and then we've got the Translational Institute as well, you know, to look at the genomics and the, the biomarkers all, all so, under one roof. So, you know, I did this, I, I discovered Famitis the hard way, right, which was, you know, there was no caliper, there was no pharmaceutical interest whatsoever. In some ways, that's really a great education. In another perspective, that's probably why it's taken 25 years from the onset of research in this area to a regulatory agency approved mm-hmm. drug. So it'll be faster going forward. My worldview is that the reason we are where we are in neurodegenerative diseases is because we haven't invested enough money in early diagnostics. I think that's just so important. I, I agree with you 100%. I think this we need to peel back that diagnostic mm. sort of timeline a little bit more so we can have some chance of hitting the mechanisms before they cause too much damage. Um, and even a couple of years may not be enough. We may need to go back 10 years really to yeah. have any real impact. And that doesn't mean we can't continue to invest in ways to treat people with the disease. And we don't want to forget that. For us, it's really important to know that there are people who have Parkinson's today who suffer from the symptoms and and there has to be ways that we can sort of alleviate their issues with quality of life and, and disabilities that they have. And so uh, you, you mentioned earlier sort of the use of technologies, and it's something we've started to explore now, less in the context of outcome measurements, but more in the context of applied technology as treatment even. And so the idea that can you address someone's tremor or some of their movement challenges uh, using uh, applied neurotechnology approaches? Yeah, when, when you look on things on balance, where do you think have been the, the core areas of success for the foundation? There's for the field and for the foundation, I, mean, I, th- I think for the foundation, some of our biggest impact investments, again, have been probably establishing some of the, the cohort efforts that we have and just some of the, uh, what we're learning from those cohorts. 
So for us, it's probably more targeted, you know, the patient recruitment efforts, the, the, the patient cohort needs and longitudinal uh, studies. A lot of this, again, tool and uh, tool development that we've done, again, from making antibodies to uh, research animal models to, uh, you know, a whole variety of different tools that we can provide the community to use. Also, like, you know, bringing people together in different sort of models, you know, consortium models and things like that. And I think that's probably where a lot of our impact has largely been. Um, the field, I think, is... You know, we're excited because the pipeline feels kind of robust right now. Um, again, a lot of new ways to sort of treat the symptoms, but also some of these early stage clinical tests now of drugs we think are targeting genetically defined mechanisms of Parkinson's disease. And if any of those start showing any kind of signal, I think you're going to see a lot of, you know, really, uh, you know, big, big investment in the field and sort of everybody coming into the space. So, How has the foundation been committed to kind of open access uh, data sharing? And how is that leading to accelerated discoveries for patients? And then, uh, Jeff, on your side, you know, how, how do researchers best yeah. uh, engage with and capitalize on these? Yeah, these we haven't sort of taken it head on in the sense that I, I know the Gates Foundation and others have taken a more sort of aggressive approach to, you know, uh, sort of uh, pushing for open access publications and things like that. You know, I think we've always been big on data sharing and sort of tool sharing in a couple of different ways. Um, for one thing, our, our you know, by action, um, our large uh, uh, prospective longitudinal cohort study, for example, all the data from that are made available essentially in real time. So you can go download today. If you want to go to the website, you can request access to the clinical data. And we're adding you know, new data as we go along. Uh, and there's also a mechanism for this biosamples. If you want to request those, you can go through a, a request mechanism for that. So just by sort of leading by example, you know, that's one way that we can do it. A lot of how we fund, you know, especially in some of the consortia that we fund, we kind of bake into the terms of the consortia, you know, um, an agreement that you will share tools and information and whatever it may be with your fellow That's consortium good. members. Um, we try to keep it in a sort of protected way and provide, you know, some at least some some um, terms around, you know, you can't take someone's idea without their permission kind of thing. You know, you try to protect it as much as you can, but at least try to give them the um, space to be able to make that, that sharing happen. I would just advocate that I think that's a really healthy approach. And I would just say simply that, you know, I'm a huge fan of data sharing in the pre-competitive space. And I think we should definitely do more of that. For example, when somebody runs a clinical trial, I think a lot of the foundations now are trying to force industrial concerns to, you know, basically release the placebo group trial. Especially if the trial's positive, they almost have an obligation yeah. to do that because right. then it helps everybody else. And yeah. So I think we'll get better at this over time. Okay, there you have it, folks. Great perspectives and some really promising work on the horizon with these multi-center collaborations that are all dedicated to combating neurodegenerative disease. A huge thank you to my two guests today, Brian and Jeff. We'll have links and social media handles for the Michael J. Fox Foundation in our show notes as well as links to the work of Jeff Kelly's lab, so go ahead and check those out. Remember to follow Scripps Research on the interwebs also. And please do us all a favor and hit subscribe to the podcast on your smartphone. I can't wait to join you lovely people again soon. So until then, good day and be well.